This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. I'm your host, Don Grant. Joining me today in the co-host chair, James Woods, legendary star of such films as Primal Fear. No. Uh, Next Door, The Getaway. No. no. Uh, what? No. <laughs> Look at your screen, brother. Look at your screen. Wait, you're not that James Woods? I am so not that James Woods. <laughs> Twitter, so wait, if you're, Twitter will tell you I'm not that James Woods. If you're not that James Woods, shouldn't you have some sort of indication that you are not James Woods? So my uh, my Twitter account, if you want to follow along at home, is uh, at James Woods Music, but it comes up as not that James Woods. All right. Every time, every time he opens his mouth, man, I get the hate mail. <laughs> it's like, come on, seriously? Actually, since I changed my, th- my thing to not that James Woods, I don't get it as much but for a while there. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say over the next couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. You ready to do this, brother? Sure, yeah, yeah. Let's... Thing one. Thing number one. Henry VIII apparently planned every single detail of how Anne Boleyn was going to be beheaded. Uh, an, an archivist found this in the National Archives. It was in a, a Tudor warrant book. Uh, and it, it was just filled with all this kind of bureaucratic minutia uh, that most of the people don't look through all the time. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's define for your, your, the folks at home what a warrant book is, my friend. So a warrant book is one of these things where they would, any, any uh, crimes, any criminal activity that would be taking place. The, the funny thing is, uh, the British at the time, and I'm sure even now, were tremendously good at bureaucracy. They made notes of absolutely everything. And so there are all of these books in the National Archives that are filled with all this crazy, crazy minutiae about crimes of the time. And I don't know about you, when you think about all of these books, when you think about the number of books, it's a finite number, and you think about all the years since then up until now, you know, the the 500 years, you think that people have probably gone through all of these books, no? One would think, yeah. One would think that all of these books have probably gone been gone through with a fine-tooth comb from top to bottom all the time. But in fact, that's not the case, because so many of these books are just this sort of sequence of boring minutiae that people don't even bother to go through them. However, uh, there was a very uh, a very famous Tudor historian, Tracy Borman, who described this book as a, as, as a crazy discovery. And in it, they found that when it came to the execution of Anne Boleyn, there was a lot of controversy about how it actually took place. If you know anything about the actual story. And I, I don't. Yeah, I didn't. To be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about it as well. I mean, I, if you're anything like me, I knew the the names, obviously. And you know about Henry VIII. And he was married many times. And his wife, Anne Boleyn. And she was the first queen to be executed. But her story is actually really quite extraordinary. The simple version of it is that he was, Henry VIII was married and divorced his previous wife just so he could marry Anne Boleyn. And in order to do that, of course, he had to break from the Roman Catholic Church, which created the English Reformation. It created essentially the Church of England because he married Anne Boleyn. So she's like the mother of the Church of England then, really. She's, she's essentially the Yoko Ono. Yeah, she's the she is the mother of the Church wow. of England, and she was she was a really fascinating creature because she was described by so many people as someone who was very witty, very smart, and someone who actually 
was very compelling. People just wanted to be near her. Um, I heard one historian say that you would you would sort of describe her almost as sexy because she was very very alluring just with her intelligence, with her wit, uh, and with her charm. But of course, that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, including Henry VIII's big advisor Thomas Cromwell. Have you read any of the Hillary Mantel books? No, no, sir, I have not. Do you know them? Wolf no. Hall. No, uh, she she's written a, a trilogy of books. Well, the first one's called Wolf Hall. Uh, the second one, Bring Up the Bodies, and the third one, I cannot remember, it just came out this year. Anyway, are they these go like on, historical fiction. Are they are they're they historical fiction? They, uh, I think they they the first two won the Booker Prize, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, they're historical fiction, all going into the life of Thomas Cromwell, who was essentially the Dick Cheney of Henry VIII. He was like Henry VIII's <laughs> advisor. <laughs> Uh, his his sort of right hand man, his his ghost whisperer, but but apparently Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn did not get along very well. So when it came to the execution of Anne Boleyn, a lot of people thought that it was Thomas Cromwell behind it. She was uh, accused, most people think falsely, of uh, fooling around in the palace, of sleeping with a number of people, including her brother. But a lot of people wonder if that was because uh, she and Thomas Cromwell just were not chummy chummy. Thanks for that. Now I now I feel like I have to go back and watch every TV show about the Tudors. Um, I will admit, like actually, just reading this did make me interested in it because a lot of people wondered if uh, Henry Henry apparently was not there when she was executed. She was, in fact, the first British queen to be executed. She was beheaded, and in this document, this is getting back to the original article in the first right. place. Yeah, this, yeah. This document stipulates that, in fact. Henry VIII, who a lot of people think might not have had a lot to do with her execution, actually planned every single thing, which might seem a little crazy and psychotic. But at the same time, if you if you read through the entire thing, was also somewhat gentle because there were two options. One of them was burning by fire and the other was decapitation. And this is the, so this was the thing that I thought was really, really interesting about the article is this whole idea that, that, you know, they were, they were going to burn her at the stake because that's what you do for a high treason. Let's, oh, burn, sure. let's burn her at the stake. When in Rome. And Henry, when they, when they brought the plans to him, was like, yeah, no, maybe let's not do that. Let's, yeah. you know, here's what you're going to do. So um, in the document itself, the king, the king stipulated that, uh, the queen had been, quote, adjudged by, adjudged to death by burning of fire or decapitation. Really kind of not good choices when you think about it, but you know, whatever. And that he had been moved to pity to spare her the more painful death of being burned by fire. And then he said, he he continued, quote, we however command that the head of the same Anne shall be cut off. Right. But the interesting thing is that his phrasing of cut off actually was quite merciful because by cut off, that implied it would be done with a sword, with a very sharp sword, so it would be quick. It's really interesting when I when I, I saw that because I was like, well, they didn't say what he would have said if he'd meant for it to be, you know, hacked off with an axe. Like, would well, it, that's would what it I wondered been, that too. Would it have been chopped off? And <laughs> and that's the difference that we say, you know, cut versus chopped. Um, <laughs> we we have to we have to check out with our our British archivists and say, hey, listen, what would the verb had been if they were going to hack off her head with an axe? And it's funny. There's some stuff in here talking about how you know, oh, this proves that Henry was uh, you know was a monster. He was definitely a monster monster because he planned every single detail and it was like i read it and 
it's not a game of, you know, uh, take my wife down to the basement and let's kill her. This was about something that was meant to be a, a state execution. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a lesson to a lesson to others, I expect, in terms of treason. So it feels like his, his message to his, uh, his advisors was let this be a lesson, but let's not make her suffer too much. Right. And, um, and in fact, I think he wasn't even there. Like, according to most historians, he did not show up to be there at the execution. Right. Uh, which was, which also would have been, I mean, by, by all accounts, Henry was a little bit of the, the Trump of his day. He right. was a, he was a megalomaniac. He was a bit of a psychopath in many, many ways. Right. Uh, but in this particular case, he was by all accounts desperately in love with this woman when they first got married and her greatest crime from being married was that she never gave him a son. Uh, she had a miscarriage the one time that she was carrying a son. Uh, right. she gave him a, a daughter who grew up to be, a little person we didn't want was Elizabeth the first, but the, by cutting her head off, that meant by sword. And so he actually sent away to France for a swords person to come and cut her head off. Because they didn't have, you know, English dudes that could do that. Yeah, like what? There were not sharp swords sitting around the Tower of London? I've been to the Tower of London. There's sharp swords there. I'm pretty sure they were even sharper in 1578 or whatever. Again, maybe it's maybe it's like the dude with the axe in Harry Potter. I, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. I but can't that, that means that there had to be, so, so Anne is sentenced to death. Henry's got to sit down at his desk, pull out his stationery, write a little letter saying, Hey, uh, I need a swordsman who can cut my wife's head off. Make sure it brings a really sharp sword. Give it to somebody on a horse. They have to take it to Calais. That person has to be gotten. They have to get back on the boat. The boat has to go back to France. The guy has to show up and say, yeah, here to chop your wife's head off. That's a lot of lead time for Anne to be sitting there. You're not wrong. So, of course, she was executed and 10, I think it was 10 days later. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I think it was 10 days later uh, that he married his second or not second wife. What, I think Third. it was his 87th wife at that time, uh, Jane Seymour. Star of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Yeah, she went on to be Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. <laughs> thing two. And thing number two, we throw it to James. Is Oliver Stone's JFK film the greatest lie Hollywood has ever told? <laughs> and B... Spoiler alert. No, it's not. <laughs> and B, did Oliver Stone have a greater responsibility to the known facts surrounding the Kennedy assassination? So right. I was uh, I walked into uh, my, my living room uh, last week, and my housemates were watching JFK. Like, it was just on. And, and it's almost the 30th anniversary of that film. Can you believe that film came out 30 years ago? I... Yeah, I, I'm, it's shocking to me. So it's the courtroom scene. It's like, it's right. like, you know, all the courtroom stuff. It was the magic bullet, uh, theory that was so beautifully parodied on, on Seinfeld with the magic loogie. According to your story, Hernandez passes you and starts walking up the ramp. Mm -hmm. Then you say you were struck on the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, makes a left turn, and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. And it was really, really interesting to watch. And of course, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, you know, here's here's Kevin Costner, who was kind of America's 
fair-haired boy sweetheart he was our our every man of uh american film uh, yeah in 91 he was he was the leading man right oh like, yeah he was just on the on the heels of dances with wolves he was right. he was it Abso- absolutely and it was not not long before you know i think field of dreams had already come out dances with wolves had come out robin hood Prince of Thieves was about to come out and show us what a wonderful British oh. accent he can do. So, so here we've got Kevin Costner, who you can't help but trust Costner when you see him on screen, right? Like he's he's that guy. So, um, when you were looking at at the idea of JFK and the questions that came out of it, because it, it's approaching its thirty year thirty year anniversary, and you stumbled upon this article, what was the big question that came up for you about the film and sort of, I guess, its its legacy and what it's still doing in terms of pop culture and filmmakers' responsibility. Well, I think for for anybody that's that's our age, we're in that sort of Gen X gap, right? You and me. I'm 19. <laughs> right. Mm-mm. Yeah. Well, I'm in that Gen X uh, zone that's too young to remember the Kennedy assassination, right? People who were adults during that time remember exactly where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. Right, but for us, it's all secondhand information. Yeah. Um, you know, and But for us, it's 9-11, right? We know where we were when 9 11 happened and, right, we're, and right. we're more than happy to talk about it. That's no, a good comparison. But for us, for the these Gen, Gen Xers watching it in 1991, it it was history. Our recollection of what what that history is comes from film and television. Right. So and, and- so has JFK has a 1991 Oliver Stone film that is about conspiracy theories. Has that replaced the actual history for a generation? Of I mean, goers. yeah, there's a professor named Tom Stone who teaches in, in Texas, who he teaches a course on JFK, uh, and he begins his course all the time with a screening of the film JFK, because what he wants to do is he wants people to see that version of events before he then takes and starts to deconstruct all of the events after that. Yeah, I thought that was really very, very cool. Uh, some of the stuff that he says about it, he says, you know, it, it's a great, it's a well-made movie. The best introduction to conspiracy theories even if the rest of the semester is spent poking holes in it, I love the I love the the comparison he makes to the Bible. He says basically everyone comes to a, everyone comes to the assassination with their own agenda. He says the quote is he says it's easy to manipulate and cherry pick because the evidence is contradictory and all over the place. It's just like the Bible; you can start plucking stuff out to prove just about anything. Are you um, are you a conspiracy theory guy or no? No, I neither. No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm really not. And to me, that's actually the interesting thing about the JFK assassination is that, like, I I am very much not a conspiracy theory guy because the idea of conspiracy theories basically posits that there is no such thing as uh, something that can't be figured out. Sometimes there's just stuff that you can't figure out. There are sometimes gaps in our knowledge. There's sometimes coincidences that happen. There are things that just happen. But of course, people then take information and piece it together in ways that sort of indicates things that already inform their existing belief. The the interesting larger question and the one that I think that you are getting towards is uh, to what level does a filmmaker like Oliver Stone have a responsibility to tell the truth in a situation like this, I, I mean, he has said he was creating myth, um, yes. which is fine, I guess. I mean, it's it's a little bit precious, but at the same time, what happens is, you know, so, so many of us, when we see a film that says based on a real story, based on true events, we forget those first two words, you know, based on. We do forget that, that things are, are based on real events and that they're, we're not actually watching the real events where there are so many things that can't be known. So if you look at something like The Crown, 
now in season four on Netflix, and I am uh, I'm almost done season four. I was going to say, are you part of their publicity team or what's uh, now in season four on Netflix? Streaming <laughs> now. It's funny. I have not watched it yet, but my wife watches it regularly and absolutely adores it. She's about halfway through season four as well. The Crown, when every season is released, it's almost then a secondary season of people going through it and checking the veracity of that particular season. So it's almost like this cottage industry of people who will go through it and say, this isn't true. That's not true. And this new season that was just released, season four, is, my goodness, no exception at all. <laughs> no, it's not. And uh, uh, Simon Jenkins, who is uh, who is a renowned British journalist and author, right. 77 years old, former chairman of the uh, the National Trust, Sir Simon Jenkins, Knight Bachelor. Yeah, say sir, just in case he's listening. We don't yes, want to. Yes, formerly of the, uh, the Evening Standard, The Economist, The Times of London, Huffington Post, now writing for the, now a columnist for The Guardian on a pretty regular basis. And he wrote a piece on November 16th that is titled, The Crown's Fake History is as Corrosive as Fake News. Yeah. And what he did was he went through and he, actually it wasn't him, it was a historian, Hugo Vickers, who went through and enumerated a number of significant historical inaccuracies in this latest season of The Crown. Absolutely. And and I don't want to get, I don't want to get too deep into what the inaccuracies are because I don't care because it's a good story well told. But the the question that that gets begged is, you know, do we owe more to people who are still living that we're making movies about? Well, as we as we talked about just now with the JFK thing, you say it's a good story well told, but at the same time, to how much do we owe? You know, the the scriptwriter for the Crown, Peter Morgan, he said, "quote Sometimes you have to forsake accuracy, but you must never forsake truth." Like. What the hell does that mean? Like that goes back to Oliver Stone saying that he is creating myth. That's a little bit precious. And that's walking a really fine line. I understand where he's coming from on this much more than Oliver Stone and the myth making thing. I think you can sacrifice the date that something happened or the person who said it in order in order to get the story across. I mean, the, we constantly see screenwriters amalgamating characters and condensing events. Here's where I have a bit of an issue with all this. The Crown, uh, they've had historical inaccuracies, but sometimes they're accidental. Right. Like, for example, in, in the new season, after uh, Lord Mountbatten gets assassinated by the IRA, they showed footage of an IRA march. But in fact, the footage of the march that they showed, a cut to footage of the UDA, the uh, Ulster Defense Association, which is actually a let's stay in the United Kingdom. It's, it's basically the opposite of the IRA. And they use that. See, to me, that's an accident. That's just not necessarily stupidity. That's just laziness. But there's a difference between that and actually making stuff right. up. If you look at the Simon Jenkins article that you were referring to, he enumerates a number of things that that were are completely made up. Princess Margaret ridiculing Princess Diana for not being able to curtsy. Uh, the Queen being responsible for leaking her view of Margaret Thatcher as being uncaring. Uh, Princess Diana throwing a tantrum on a visit to Australia. All these things which never happened but were made up in Peter Jenkins' mind because he wanted to be true to something. You know, when you look at millions of viewers who are being told these things, which in many cases are not true, that both Diana and Margaret Thatcher were humiliated by the royal family at Balmoral, the fact is we should not have to rely on historians to track us down and say, oh, by the way, that wasn't true. There's going to be millions of people like my wife who watch this and think, I guess that probably happened. And they will never actually know that this is a complete fabrication. In this article that you sent me, he talks about it as being fake history, like that it's fake history, which is in some way even more dangerous. When you do fake history with something like Henry VIII, 
and Anne Boleyn, that's a whole different thing because there, there ain't too many people around anymore who are going to correct it. Even with JFK, there are not as many people around anymore. But when you're showing footage of an IRA march, there are people who are going to be watching this who are actually at that march. They're going to see. There are so many arguments for this. There are so many ways to refute this stuff. Is it worse because because some of the people are still living or because these things are in recent memory? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it is. It is still a drama. It is still for it is still for our entertainment. I mean, when I watched the first season of The Crown, I felt a little bit dirty watching it. Because, <laughs> right? Why? Because you knew that there was so much uh, license, artistic license taken. Because they were making they were making so you, like you know that they have to be making a lot of assumptions about things that were discussed in private. Right. So when you're watching Elizabeth and Prince Philip and the way that their relationship plays out, and you're seeing scenes that no one could possibly know what kind of discussions happened between that couple. The conversations behind the bedroom door stuff, I actually find that less egregious because anybody who is watching the show is going to obviously assume that there's no way we can know that, right? So they're going to know that this is stuff that's made up. However, when you look at something which is very verifiable, like Lord Mountbatten writing a letter to Prince Charles the day before his death, which we know he didn't do, or the royal family laying protocol traps to humiliate Margaret Thatcher, which we know didn't happen. To me, that's a bit more dangerous because you're airing on the side of making stuff up in a place where some people are going to go, wait, really? Did that actually happen? It would be really worth it for you to see it and and judge for yourself based on uh, watch the episode and then decide whether Simon Jenkins actually has a point about about those scenes because I I think his opinion on this is a little bit overblown personally. One of the one of the best ways to cut through the haze of all of this is to do what Mr. Dominic Withrow of Woking Surrey did in writing a letter to the Daily Telegraph about a week or two ago, complaining about the historical inaccuracies of season four of The Crown. This is the letter. Sir, as touch royalists, my wife and I decided to watch the new series of The Crown so that we could pick away at its inaccuracies and untruths. However, despite the ample warnings in the press, we were unprepared for the depth of injustice on display, particularly towards Prince Charles. The show's portrayal of his fishing technique was utterly unjustifiable. To imagine that any self-respecting fisherman would allow his line to touch down so catastrophically is bad enough, but to then suggest that such a cast could possibly result in the landing of a fine salmon is tantamount to gross, almost criminal negligence. Never has a television series managed to lose all credibility with such aplomb. That is from Mr. Dominic Withrow of Woking Surrey. Now, <laughs> of course, I assumed that this was probably a tongue-in-cheek taking the piss kind of a joke. And lo and behold, it turns out that it was because Slate Magazine, Slate.com, tracked down Mr. Withrow from Surrey, where he said that he was, in fact, taking the piss, but at the same time, did point out the fact that Prince Charles's fishing technique was catastrophically bad. <laughs> I mean, this has been going on since since the Greeks, since Shakespeare's time. Like, we've had historical plays. There was a real play, Macbeth? That play fast and loose with the history to tell a story, right? Yeah, I mean, Macbeth was king for 20 years. His wife, as far as we know, was not a hand-washing psychopath. Although, hey, <laughs> she didn't live through 2020, so who knows? And we have some breaking news. James and I had this conversation a few weeks ago after this fourth season of The Crown was released. Since then, the controversy about its veracity has grown quite heavily into the zeitgeist, which led to last week the UK Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden asking that a label 
be added to the show, saying that it was fiction. Netflix just replied to that this weekend, saying that they will not be adding a disclaimer to The Crown, saying that the show is fictionalized. Netflix says, quote, We have always presented The Crown as a drama, and we have every confidence our members understand it is a work of fiction that is broadly based on historical events. As a result, we have no plans and see no need to add a disclaimer. Next season, we'll see the addition of Patrick Stewart as Professor Xavier. Thing 3. Thing 3. The crazy life of the man who shot the man who shot Abraham Lincoln. Now, you and I both know our assassination history a little bit. Right. We know For various and sundry reasons. We have we have our we have our reasons. Yes. Yeah. We and no secret service don't come after us. It's nothing, <laughs> nothing untoward. But but it's um, a musical know, theater thing, guys. It's a musical theater seriously. Thing. I know a fair amount about John Wilkes Booth, and so I'd come across Boston Corbett before. That Boston Corbett is the man who apparently we'll get to that in a second shot John Wilkes Booth in the barn in Virginia and eventually avenged the murder of Abraham Lincoln. But this guy, oh my goodness, had the craziest damn life that you could possibly imagine. Okay, so born in London in 1832, Thomas Corbett's family moved to New York when he was seven and he apprenticed as a hat maker, which exposed him to the mercury used to make felt from fur. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you you know this and probably our listeners do, do too. The expression mad as a hatter and the mad hatter in Alice's Wonderland come from the fact that these these guys would get mercury poisoning and they would have the shakes, trembling yeah. and nervousness, and according to this article, psychotic episodes. Well, and this would go on to haunt him for the rest of his life. So he, he did start, he apprenticed as a milliner when he was younger, and that's kind of exposed him to the mercury that they, they used mercury to make the felt of the hats from fur. So they would take the, the raw fur. I wonder how much mercury cost back then. Like, was it really cheap? Was it just like, you could pop down to the, you know, Mercury's R Us and buy a bunch of it? I don't even I, know. I really, and, where do you get mercury? Like, other know. than from the inside of a old school thermometer i mean it's on. it it's on it's on the shelf beside venus um and so <laughs> he uh so he got the hatter's shakes and everything he was but he he grew up to be somebody who then was also very 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 against slavery he, he had a, a horrible tragic life when his wife died uh giving birth to their daughter he became an alcoholic went to boston and there oh he found god and became well, a street preacher Shakespeare couldn't have written this, like couldn't write a more tragic story. This guy who's has psychotic episodes brought on by an irritant at his work. He's itinerant because he can't hold a job. And we find out that, you know, one of the reasons that he can't hold a job, for instance, when he was working in Richmond, Virginia, his abolitionist views didn't really work very well. <laughs> very well among the uh, uh among the slave holders that were his customers crazy so that. so crazy that so he goes back to uh to the north he moves back to new york city his wife dies in childbirth he goes into an alcoholic depression and he moves to boston and he's homeless there he's just oh, but there is one person who can save him my friend <laughs> and that's jebus because uh, <laughs> he gets uh basically taken in by uh by a street side evangelist and becomes a preacher himself, a, one of these, like he sounds, he, by, by all accounts, 
if you if you listen to stories of this guy's life, he's the guy you would move away from on the subway. He absolutely, you know, he he'd be talking to himself on the subway. He uh, became a street preacher, a very very devout street preacher, which led to my favorite part of his entire story before he even shoots John Wilkes Booth, which is when uh, he was uh, propositioned by a couple of prostitutes on the streets. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. He's propositioned by a couple of prostitutes on the street and he decides, you know what? I don't want this kind of temptation anymore. And so he goes home and castrates himself with scissors. uh, And then (laughs) I'm just going to read directly from the article. Taking a pair of scissors, he removed his own testicles before eating a hearty dinner, going for a walk, and attending another prayer meeting. Only later did he see a doctor. I'm going to assume that he's the only person in history for whom that sentence applies, but holy merciful God, that is just insane. You could not put this in a screenplay and have anyone believe it. Anyway, he goes and he fights the Civil War. He uh, doesn't do well with authority because uh, he questions everybody. Uh, He wore his hair very long and black. Why? Because he looked like Jeebus. Uh, He was very uh, insubordinate. Eventually, he was captured and sent to Andersonville Prison, which is a legendarily awful, horrible prison where there was a death disease, torture, etc. Very few people came out of there alive. He came out of there alive. He got very, very sick, and they just kind of released him, which was odd. They're just like, oh, yeah, here, go ahead. Go, go, go fight for the other side again and kill some of ours. I found that weird, no? His military history is really quite bizarre. He had already been court-martialed and sentenced to death for insubordination, yes. and they decided, they decided not to kill him. So they turn it, they turn him loose. So he goes and he immediately reenlists with another company and goes back to the war. So then, of course, Lincoln gets assassinated and John Wilkes Booth heads off to Virginia and uh, his company, Company L, were the ones who were sent. And they were told very specifically that to capture him alive because they wanted to interrogate him and publicly execute him. Because a lot of people forget that John Wilkes Booth did not act alone. John Wilkes Booth was actually planning originally to kidnap Lincoln. Um, there, there were a whole bunch of plans. There were other people in on the conspiracy, etc. So they wanted to capture him alive. Of course, he goes to the barn. Many people know this story. They decide to set fire to the barn to draw him out. Now, at that point, this is this, I'm going to speak Corbett's words himself. This is Boston Corbett himself. He says, quote, finding the fire gaining upon him, Booth turned to the other side of the barn and got towards where the door was. And as he got there, I saw him make a movement towards the floor. I supposed he was going to find his way out. One of the men who was watching told me that Booth aimed his carbine at him. He was taking aim with the carbine but at whom I could not say. My mind was upon him attentively, and I to see that he did no harm. When I became impressed that it was time, I shot him. I took steady aim on my arm and shot him through a large crack in the barn. Now, historians will also tell you this might be a crock of BS. <laughs> because if you look at the, like, the, the 1865 version of ballistics, the bullet that they actually removed from Booth was actually not necessarily in line with the gun that Boston Corbett had. And a lot of people saw him as a glory seeker afterwards. Yeah. I, uh, when I, when I was reading this, my, uh, my notes say, uh, so there was nobody with him, no witness that saw him do it. And the bullet that killed Booth could not possibly have come from his gun. So this <laughs> is probably the best episode of CSI I have ever read. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally true. <laughs> and the funny thing is he then had a very, like his, his crazy life wasn't over because after that he was tried But finally, they said, oh, okay, you're the guy who avenged Abraham Lincoln. He was eventually sent to a mental institution from which he escaped. 
he hightailed it down to Mexico and was never heard from again. No one even knows when or how he died. He just kind of vanished. So this uh, this crazy story of this man who shot John Wilkes Booth is of this psychotic, self-castrated, street-preaching, anti-slavery, alcoholic, name the number of things that can apply to this guy. But holy cow. It, it, one thing is for sure, he, he lived a life. And I got to say props to John Wilkes Booth, who managed to outwit a regiment for 12 days. 12 days, that's right. Like yeah. 12 a broken days leg. for them to catch him. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you so much, James Woods, star of such films as Primal Fear. Not that uh, James Woods. Dig, still. Digstown. Not <laughs> Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, any socials that you would uh, like people to follow you on, Mr. Woods? Um, I make smart-ass comments on uh, Twitter sometimes, at uh, James Woods Music. What's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at 3interestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at 3, that's the number 3, interesting things. Or tweet it to us at 3interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. <laughs> <laughs>